Um, well, hello everyone and um, welcome to the final session of our BSSH 2020 virtual conference. Um, this evening um, is going to be a roundtable um, in which we discuss um, the um, quite interesting topic, um, the future of sports history. I'm delighted to say um, that we've got a, a real great range um, of four excellent speakers um, here with us this evening. Um, so I will introduce them uh, one by one in a minute. Um, but the, the speakers are Dr. Christina Fryer from Goldsmiths University of London, um, Dr. Jeff Levitt, um, who's the producer of our Sport and History podcast, Dr. Carol Osborne from Sporting Heritage, and Professor Kai Schiller from Durham University, who's also the editor-in-chief of the Sport and History Journal. Um, so the way that this is going to work is each of our speakers is going to speak for a few minutes um, on the subject of the future of sports history. Um, and um, I will introduce them one by one before they do so. Um, and then we will move into a time of general kind of question and commenting and discussion. And hopefully we can generate some interesting conversations around the future of our discipline, sports history. Um, so. Um, I hope you don't mind, um, Dr. Christina Fryer, but I'm going to come to you first because we're doing this in alphabetical order. Um, so Dr. Fryer is a lecturer in Black British History at Goldsmiths University of London, and she's a historian of modern Britain, the British Empire and the modern Caribbean. Her, her work embeds modern British history within the fields of comparative slavery and emancipation studies, and she's currently finishing a manuscript about disaster politics in post-emancipation Jamaica. She currently convenes Goldsmith's MA in Black British History, which launches in September. And she's also one of the 2020 BBC Radio 3 slash AHRC New Generation Thinkers. And she's going to be writing a radio essay about black athletes in the 20th century who inhabited both British and Caribbean identities. So, Christina, you have the floor now for a few minutes for your reflections on the future of sports history. Okay. Uh, thank you uh, so much. Thank, thank you to all of you for, uh, for uh, being here. Um, and I also just want to make a, a special thanks to uh, Matt McDowell, who invited me uh, to speak uh, to, to speak to y'all uh, today. Um, so as you probably got the sense, I am a bit of an interloper to the field. Um, at the moment, I do not work directly uh, in the field of sports history, but I'm a, I would consider myself to be a very interested uh, outsider. Um, I've been writing in terms of sort of uh, popular writing essays and the like. I've been writing about sports and race for a few years now. Um, and at some point, I'm hoping to start a research project about Britain, uh, the empire slash the Commonwealth and international sports competitions. So that's in part why I uh, am uh, moving into this field. Um, and as Raf just uh, suggested, um, I've been doing some early forays into this with this idea of looking at uh, sports figures who moved between uh, British and Caribbean identities as athletes. Um, but I think for me, at least, when I was thinking about the future of sports history, um, I think in a way, the fact that I've been sort of thinking about working on this project for such a long time and thinking about what I hope to do with that project um, while sitting outside the field, um, I think that has given me uh, an opportunity to develop some thoughts about um, a field that I hope to be a more active part of soon. So from my perspective outside of the field, um, I think sports history is still more marginalized within the broader field of history than other forms of leisure and cultural expression. Uh, and for me, this is quite unfortunate um, because of the universality of sports. Um, and, you know, of course, there are many people who don't care about sports at all. 
Um, but I think if we just think about the past six months, uh, and we if we think about the pandemic, uh, and here I am uh, speaking as somebody who's currently working on disasters and what they tell us, um, I think we've seen in the past six months just how crucial spectator sports are to many societies, culturally and economically. We've seen how much their absence uh, has been felt, uh, and we've also seen the extraordinary lengths uh, deemed appropriate in order to have them return. Um, I am at times uh, fairly active on Twitter, um, so I've been tweeting for months about the fact that in the United States, uh, college football uh, seemed to be dictating the extent to which universities were intent on staying open in the uh, in, in the fall, uh, and or whether the whether the campuses were open for learning, uh, preserving uh, football seasons. Um, and on the one hand, this is of course about money and the sort of major you know, financial outfit uh, that is having farm teams essentially uh, on college campuses. Um, but college football also plays a sort of local and regional role in the United States um, that we don't, you know, we don't have, uh, we don't have football in the sense of the Premier League. Uh, we don't have that sort of local affiliation except for college football. And so there's an extraordinary cultural loss that I think people are also responding to as well. So in other words, for most of the 20th and 21st century, spectator sports have been an extraordinarily important part of life. Uh, and our histories of these periods and even earlier should reflect that. And I would say that that's whether you're sort of, a, you know, um, working particularly on a sports history project or not. And I think a lot of the work uh, that is not specifically sports history does not seem to reflect um, the importance of this as a cultural phenomenon. Um, a second set of thoughts that I have, and this is a little bit more connected to my work, um, is that I, for me, sports history is a really important way to think through the legacies of slavery, uh, colonialism, and race. Uh, and this is an area where I would like for there to be more work in the future, especially for historians of Britain. Uh, and now there's a caveat that I should of course say here, which is that there's been quite a lot of work about sports in the British Empire. So, so I, I, I'm not trying to suggest that there has not been. Um, but I think there's been much less historical work on race and sports in mainland Britain. Uh, there's a lot of sociological work, uh, and I get the sense that historians are sort of leaving the sociologists to it. Uh, and I'm not sure that that, uh, that, that we should be. Um, I think sports history allows us to think more critically about performances of citizenship, um, as well as the sort of shifting constitution of the body politic. So um, in addition to being a historian of Britain and the Caribbean, which is how I would personally identify my research, um, I'm obviously working in the field of Black British history, um, which is, as I think many of you probably know, which is racing into a kind of institutional prominence across UK universities. Uh, after decades of being ignored uh, by, by, uh, by academics. Um, and there are a few ways to do Black British history, and I think I'll, I'll mention two of them and the ways that I think sports history also fits into those ways. Um, the first way is by finding and identifying or trying to identify uh, Black people in the British past. Um, and I, as a historian of the Caribbean, I want to say that there is a, a question we should also be asking about which places constitute the British past, um, because one way of answering that question is that, of course, the Caribbean is part of the British past, and so it's not hard to find and identify Black people in the British past. But if we're focusing on mainland Britain, um, there are certain time periods where it's easier to identify Black people in the past than others. Um, and that is, you know, historians are quite reliant on the whims of when race has been recorded in parish records and when it hasn't been. 
But in thinking about that, some of the more prominent Black people in, in particular, the 18th century and uh, the 19th century and the Victorian period were athletes. And so that would be one way, I think, of connecting Black British history uh, and sports history. There's a second way of doing Black British history, and this is the mode that I tend to work in, um, which is to use Black British history to force a rethinking about, uh, about what we know about the very categories of British history. So for example, what does nationality mean when it's so porous? And I would suggest that sports history is actually a, a, a very good way of thinking about the porousness of national affiliation. Um, who is accepted as a representative of the nation and how does that change uh, over time? Uh, how do people sort through overlapping identities, both athletes themselves, but also spectators uh, and even people who aren't necessarily active spectators, but who are citizens? So if you think about people in the present, like Raheem Sterling or Jaffer Archer, these are people who are both Caribbean and British, who are both Jamaicans. Uh, Raheem Sterling is both Jamaican and English. Uh, Jaffer Archer uh, is more clearly both Barbadian uh, and English. So what does it mean to be sitting with these overlapping identities? And can we in fact say that, British, that Britishness, such as it is, um, in fact allows this um, or perhaps doesn't allow this? I think sports is a way to think through these complexities. Uh, and then finally, I would say, you know, what also, one other thing to think through is how do people of color respond when they are excluded from the nation? Uh, and that both includes um, athletes who are, um, who are attacked or who are, um, who face uh, racist abuse, but I think it also gets us to this question of uh, sports as, or athletes as activists. Um, so here, of course, we have a very long, rich, and ongoing tradition of athletes as activists in the United States, um, and a somewhat more fraught version of that in Britain that I think has both been underlooked but also under uh, under theorized. Um, so these are I'll, I'll conclude I'll conclude there. But these are some of the ways that I would like to see uh, both the field of sports history moving, but also those of us who are not necessarily working uh, actively in this field, but nonetheless can be using sports history to think through these important questions. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Christina. Um, lots of lots of food for thought there. Um, I'll move on now um, to our next speaker, um, which is Dr. Jeffrey Levitt. Um, so Dr. Levitt writes on the history of sport in Britain and France. He's currently working on the life of the French sportsman, sports administrator and journalist France Rochelle. He's also the editor of our BSSH Sport and History podcast, which features interviews and events with a broad range of researchers into sports history from the UK and around the globe. So over to you, Jeff, for your reflections. Um, wow, it's difficult to follow, actually, because Christina was so, um, uh, so eloquent. And uh, I'm actually going to echo slightly some of what she was saying. Um, hard not to uh, when we're living through times like this. Um, I'm also aware of how much research is out there that I haven't read. And so if I say we need to do this and people who are listening or watching actually are doing that, then um, that's not because, I, um, because I've ignored you. It's because I just didn't know. I don't, I don't have a complete sort of helicopter view of everything that's going on in our discipline. Um, so I'm going to break down my thoughts into three levels. That's the micro, the media and the macro. And starting with the micro, I think one of the most significant publications recently has been Paul Campbell's book, Football, Ethnicity and Community, The Life of an Afro-Caribbean Football Club, where he looks at a micro history of, of a football club 
um, in the West Midlands, I think it is, and kind of uses that to explore the experience of black men in the 20th century in this country. But what I'd argue is that we need a thousand Paul Campbells and we need a thousand Paula Campbells as well. Um, we need a proliferation of these kinds of micro histories, not just in the Afro-Caribbean community, but I'm looking around where I live in Green Lanes in London. Um, I'm aware of Turkish football leagues operating in North London. Um, I played football for 25 years myself, but our, our experience is never overlapped. Um, because of my position in society, I find it very easy to write about my experience as a footballer. Um, but those people, for example, who are playing in Turkish leagues uh, from the 60s through to the present day, um, their voices aren't being heard, their experiences aren't being heard. And so I think on a micro level, that is certainly something that we as historians need to um, encourage our students to take on. Looking at the medium level, another um, um, historian whose work I've really enjoyed recently uh, was that of Amanda Callan Spen. And she uh, has completed her PhD on a woman called Sarah Mayer, who um, went to Japan and uh, became one of the first British exponents of judo in Japan. A really interesting life story and, and a transnational uh, story. And I think what Christina was saying about the British Empire and sport is very true that um, the British Empire has been explored um, a lot um, over the last few years. And in fact, I've done a lot of that exploration myself. Um, but I think that we also need to um, go from sports in the British world to looking at British sports in the world, that there are these other networks that are operating beyond the empire in what you might call the informal empire or the kind of the cultural hegemony of Britain in the late 19th century and, it, and its influence on especially um, ruling elites um, in other countries. And I've done this to a minor extent um, looking at France, but there, there's multiple um, uh, territories that I think that we could explore much more. And so that brings me to the macro. And in our discipline, the, the real starting wave of uh, sports history was in the 70s and 80s. Um, and all of the big books uh, were written then. And often they're still seen as the standard works on our discipline. But I think the authors of those books, people like uh, Dick Holt, uh, Tony Mason, are themselves acknowledging that there were gaps in, 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 uh, in their standard texts. And so what I'm hoping is that these micro histories that will be emerging and have been emerging over the last uh, couple of decades will start to provoke people to rewrite the standard texts so that when our students come into uh, first year at university, um, sport in history, as good as it was, will not be the, the first book on the list for them to read. So, um, and I would argue that this needs to be taken on as a matter of urgency to kind of um, bring in the voices and the experiences of those people who were overlooked um, by the pioneering works of the 80s, um, but that's 40 years ago. So in the future, we need to be looking at different kinds of pasts. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Jeff. Again, um, lots, of, lots of things to... Yeah. Ah. <laughs> Not sport in history, but sport in the British. Sorry, sport in the British. I'm sorry, Kai. Uh, <laughs> I think we knew what you meant. Thanks, Jeff. Um, okay, our, our, <laughs> our third speaker of the evening um, is Dr. Carol Osborne. Um, now, 
Carol will be a, a familiar face to many of you. She sat on our BSSH executive um, for 10 years, I think it was until 2017. Um, until 2019, she was senior lecturer on the sport and social science programme at Leeds Beckett University, specialising in sporting history and heritage. She's now honorary research associate with Sporting Heritage, and she's currently occupied co-editing co a couple of special editions of sport and history on women in sport and on sporting heritage theory and practice. So over to you, Carol, for your thoughts. Hi, thanks, Raph. Um, hello, everybody. Um, just want to pick up on something that Raph said right at the start. She said that this future of sports history is a very interesting topic. And it occurred to me uh, that it's so interesting that I've now uh, been on three panels, including this one, speaking about this very topic. Um, and the first, you know, and I, and I want to reflect on those because I think probably by just quickly reflecting on those two previous panels, we can perhaps see how that future has been panning out in a way and how it can pan out again in the next perhaps five to ten years. The first uh, panel was, uh, I think it was in 2011 at the University of Huddersfield, and it was a panel um, uh, and actually a conference that was... Um, organised by Duncan Stone. I don't know if Duncan's in the room uh, tonight. And it brought together, you know, a range of people looking at sports history. And at, at that moment, I reflected on the position of women within the discipline um, and how, you know, uh, the constituency, the women weren't well represented in the constituency of sports history and that women were under-researched in sports history. So if we wind that on now 10 years, with nearly 10 years, we can see that that position has changed quite dramatically, but even so, that's an ongoing project. So obviously there are a lot of people in the room this evening who have specifically done research on women. There's some excellent research coming through, but that is ongoing and there's still an awful lot more to do in that perspective, we're thinking about future developments. The second occasion, that I was asked to reflect on this question of the future of sports history was at a Manchester Metropolitan um, uh, symposium called the Future of Sports History. And on that occasion, and I think this is the thing that I need to highlight this evening because I'm, I'm here really as a research associate for Sporting Heritage, was I was reflecting on how important that relationship is between sports history and sporting heritage. And I think the main reason for that is because sporting heritage has demonstrated itself to have a great ability to go out into the community and to engage the general public with their sporting heritage, as opposed to that, perhaps, I don't know, the word history can sometimes alienate communities, I think, whereas if you start to speak to people about their heritage, that perhaps feels a bit more of a, a more friendly kind of way of engaging people. But also it's about being able to reach more diverse audiences uh, within communities and localities. And I think Sporting Heritage has probably uh, been more successful at that in recent years. Perhaps partly as well because they're not so encumbered with the red tape of universities, which sometimes can stall our spontaneity within research. Um, and I, and I also think that the relationship between sports history and heritage has shown itself to be incredibly important. 
through the AHRC uh, collaborative PhD programs and, and there are people in the room again tonight who have, you know have far more um, information that they can share with people about that process and you know and I would encourage people to actually um, bring bring that aspect into the discussion because that marriage between uh, historically you know the more rigorous his historical academic research but also the dissemination of that through different methods within the community it is really, really important for our discipline, um, but also for the public as well. And I think that universities need to really keep their eyes on that particular issue. And can I just make one final point this evening? If I'm thinking about the future of sports history, I think that, um, um, no bias here, that the British Society of Sports History itself is incredibly important as a point of, um, it's, it's got an autonomy that makes it a really important point of reference for people who are connected to universities, but also people who perhaps no longer have a job in a university or you know, aren't in tenured positions. I think the BSSH has the ability to really drive the discipline forward, perhaps in a way that people who are encumbered with institutional uh, responsibilities you know, may not be able to do. So for me, the future of the discipline is very much still tied up with BSSH and all of the initiatives that it is seeking to drive forward. That's it. Thank you so much for that, Carol. Okay. Um, and um, I note that um, Duncan Stone is in, the, is in the room this evening and he said hello in the chat, so hi. Hi Duncan, maybe we can bring you in um, later um, and um, perhaps we can talk more about the, the changes between that 2011 um, event at, Huddles, at, at Huddersfield and, and now, but I just want to bring in our, our final um, speaker this evening, um, Professor Kai Schiller. Um, so Kai is Professor of Modern European History at the University of Durham and he's also Editor-in-Chief of Sport and History. His publishing record includes co-edited co volumes on German intellectual history, German sports history and the history of the FIFA World Cup, a co-authored monograph on the 1972 Munich Olympic Games, a monograph on Jewish-German intellectual history and another on the 1974 FIFA World Cup. Um, his book, The 1972 Munich Olympics and the Making of Modern Germany, won both the North American Society for Sports History Book Award and our own BSSH Aberdare History Prize. Kai is currently involved in an interdisciplinary research project on masculinity, gender, violence and sports, and in writing a biography of Alex Natan, a gay left-wing sports writer and emigre to the UK, who was the fastest Jew in Germany in the 1920s. Um, so Kai, over to you for a few minutes of your thoughts. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, I think there's a lot of overlap between what I'm saying now and what's been said by Carol, but also by um, Christina and to some extent also by Jeff. I come from, I come to this question of the future of sports history from perhaps a more pragmatic uh, position and, um, and that regards, you know, the kind of chances that people have to um, make their points or write about sports history in, in, in academia. Um, very recently, it's been claimed that sport is the new film and that the field of sport history um, has arrived. That was in a, in a special issue 
of the International Journal of the History of Sport. And I'm not so sure that this is true when we look at the market for academic positions for sport history. And I, I know the UK, obviously, and I know Germany. And in both these places, jobs in our field are cut. And sport history does not seem to be in a particularly good shape. And, and this despite the cultural turn in historical studies, which given that no other form of popular culture, not even film, is more visible or popular than sport, suggests that there should be more positions at all levels, including for recent PhDs. Moreover, with COVID-19, worldwide academia is no longer expanding as it still was a few years ago, so rather the opposite. So I think we'll find it even harder to write the history of black, Asian and minority ethnic sports, or of sports of people with disability, or the history of women's sport, and like white and able-bodied scholars, male and female historians from these groups will find it hard to get a job. And I think um, I, have, I have kind of five recommendations of what we can perhaps do about this. And none of this is original. Um, uh, Heather Dichter, Ray Vamplu, and others have written very cogently um, about this. Uh, my first recommendation, and much of this, what I actually say, is already being done by um, sports historians, but. Um, but I think it's, these are kind of lessons, I think, which are important to remember. Um, first of all, sports historians need to be flexible. They need to be able to work in sports science, kinesiology, and sports management departments and collaborate with um, other disciplines, people from other disciplines working on sports, such as sociologists and anthropologists. And if they apply for history jobs, my experience suggests they should have additional specializations apart from the history of sport. Um, uh, the term sleeper, um, a sports historian has been mentioned uh, by someone. So you can sort of think about it, you know, this is something, uh, my, my own experience is exactly that. I was, not, I was not a specialist for sports history when I got my first, my first job. I only turned to history of sport when um, I had the opportunity uh, to do this. The second recommendation is, um, um, and me saying this as the editor of Sport and History is kind of counterintuitive, but you should all do what you can to get published in high profile general history journals, like for example, the English Historical Review, because you will have a much greater quantitative impact on the, on, on the field of history in general if, if, we, if we do this. I know some of you are already doing this. Uh, Matt Taylor, who's in the room, has just recently published something in a very well-known um, uh, high-profile general history journal. Third, um, we need to connect um, research on sports history to major themes in historiography. So I do not agree with what Prashant Kidani yesterday, yesterday said, that we should actually stay with it. We should also look at what's actually happening be within the boundary. I think we have to go beyond the boundary. We have the advantage that sport is such a malleable topic that this history allows us to make contributions. And I know this has already been say, said uh, many times, and also tonight, uh, that we can make uh, contributions to the history of race, colonialism, gender, human rights, sexuality, democracy, nationalism, etc., etc., and also to trending fields like transnational history, or the new diplomatic history, or the history of emotions. But we need to use sports history to ask broad questions which are of relevance to more than just ourselves or an audience of sports fans. And we need to continue to look beyond the boundary and use sport as a lens to explore broader questions. Fourth recommendation, 
sports historians need to involve themselves even more with the public domain. And this is obviously echoing something that um, Carol's just said, um, with public history, heritage organizations, museums, um, uh, simply because these are audiences which, can, which we shouldn't do without. And I think the other thing uh, is we should work even more closely with sports governing bodies and commercial sports organizations. If we don't do it, there are enough journalists who believe that they are historians and that produce often poor history books about clubs, athletes, and sports events, and um, are poorly researched uh, simply because they um, don't necessarily know how to do these things, whereas we do. And fifth, uh, the fifth point is that our society, like uh, our societies, not just the BSSIH, NASH also could be mentioned, uh, needs to do even more to raise our public profile via social media, podcasts, etc. I know we do this, um, and, and perhaps um, we should even um, engage more, you know, see, see ourselves more as a lobby um, for, of, of our interests in terms of uh, our engagement with government, um, with universities, uh, with sporting circles. I know we do this, for example, now through the collaboration with the Cricket Society, but um, uh, I, think, um, I think that's also um, a, a very, very important point. And I, I have a few more, but I, I'm not gonna say those now because I'll leave something for the discussion. Thanks. Thank you so much, Kai. Um, so um, let's have a virtual round of applause for all our speakers, first of all, because I think that there, there's a lot in there. I've been frantically scribbling notes. Um, now, um, I don't have any um, questions come in in the chat yet. Um, so do, um, do type in the chat um, if anyone does want to ask something and wants me to call on you. Um, okay, oh, we've just had um, Gregory Ramshaw um, has, says that he has a question. Um, Gregory, would you like to unmute yourself and come in and ask your question? Hi everyone, thank you very much for those, uh, those thoughts. I'm Greg Ramshaw, I'm an associate professor at Clemson University in South Carolina. Um, my question actually for the panel, and this might be, maybe if there's one person, it might be Carol, but um, for sort of everyone. Um, the role of sports museums in terms of, uh, in light of COVID-19 and uh, Black Lives Matter. Uh, so maybe things like collections policies or representations, um, um, those sorts of things. And um, I wonder if, if the panel has any comments on um, maybe, you know, we've, a lot of them have had this five month gap and a lot has happened since then. Um, and uh, I wonder if the, the panel has any thoughts on that. Okay, um, thanks, thanks, Greg. Um, I'll come to Carol first. Um, and then if anyone else wants to come in, then do say so, Carol. Well, I'll say straight away that, you know, I, I've, I can't comment at all on the collections policies that museums might be implementing at this stage. I, I don't have any direct insight into that, but I would be incredibly surprised if during this, this recent period that, um, you know, those who have responsibility for collections aren't reflecting very hard on, you know, how they might um, move towards diversifying their audiences and moving towards, you know, um, greater, in, you know, inclusion and diversity policies. You know, it, it just, I mean, it almost goes without saying that that would be the case now, but I know that there are people in the room who have done collaborative PhDs 
with museums. So I don't know if Lisa might be able to comment on that from the point of view of the River and Rowing Museum, or if, uh, I don't know if Lydia's in the room or whether she might be able to say anything about the World Rugby Museum on that count. But I think it's, it's still quite a fresh period as well. And perhaps some of this, we're not really gonna see what the developments are potentially I think until we come out of the other side of the COVID-19 as well I think you know there's going to be a little bit of a shortfall before we really know what this impact is going to be as well I, I, I'm sorry I can't be more informative than that. Thanks Carol um did anyone else want to want to come in on that any of our other three panellists? Um, and um, I noticed that I think that um, Lisa and Lydia are both in the room. So did either of you yeah. want to come in on that? Uh, I, I can do. Um, I haven't seen any revised collections policies being drafted. Um, I would love to, to be more optimistic, Carol, and say that, yes, absolutely, this will have been a period of reflection. I'm sure it will have been. Uh, the River and Rowing Museum, which I have been affiliated to, um, will be under extraordinary financial pressure. I know they've they've reduced their workforce by about 25% in the last week that's been announced. Um, and I suspect it will be more trying to keep the house together, to be honest, um, for the next foreseeable. Um, I, would, uh, I would love to see it as an opportunity for um, those more um, Kind of fundamental and really important questions and i'm sure that the staff are asking them just probably not asking them of the organization right now because i don't know that there's the capacity uh, which is a very bleak view but that's that's who i am so sorry <laughs> thanks lisa um actually um i think that um lydia's just typed something into the into the chat um alex jackson who also works in the museum sector and would like to come in alex do you want to come in now Yes, if I, if I may, just very quickly, just to say, I've been on furlough since, uh, along with some of my colleagues at the museum since, uh, from April. Uh, but my colleagues who are working have been very quite active in this. And I know overall the organisation as a whole has launched, uh, essentially we are reviewing uh, our qualities across the board in terms of not only how we collect, but as an organisation as a whole. So it's very much starting a bigger, broader conversation from the top down, for also from the bottom up as well. And so my colleagues have been uh, working on this before, but also working during the COVID period to collect items such as material from uh, players uh, wearing uh, Black Lives Matters uh, uh, material on their shirts. It's very much a starting point. And as just to go back to Lisa's point, the, uh, the financial impact on the museum is still going to be, uh, we're going to be probably find that out in the next couple of months as the furlough scheme comes to an end and what that means for the museum and staff as a whole. So. I think those people who will continue to work in the sector because we're having huge cuts across it will be doing it really, I think it, certain institutions will be really, uh, really changing how they look at this. Uh, but what, how that exactly that pans out is still very much in the laps of the gods, I think, in terms of our ability to do that. Okay, thank you, Alex. Um, and I note that um, Rob Lake has a question. Rob, do you want to unmute yourself and come in? Yeah, it's great. Can everyone hear me? Yes. Okay, thank you. Yeah, so I have a question for uh, Christina and Jeff, um, but, but particularly Christina, because I think she went first, and also I think she touched on this a bit um, more fully. But um, 
I, I, I absolutely agree that there's a lack of research um, in British sports history with regard to black athletes and the BIPOC community in general. And um, if you compare this to North America, where you have very strong, I would think quite strong, uh, you know, a plethora of, an, of analyses of athletes like Muhammad Ali and Jackie Robinson, Wilma Rudolph, Alfie Gibson, Arthur Ashe, you know, it's, it's pretty strong. And uh, I, I wonder two questions. First of all, really, what is it um, that's causing this, this lag or this delay or this um, lack of engagement, so to speak, with, with regards to black athletes in, in the British context? And secondly, what can we do about it? How can we encourage this further? How can we encourage um, grad students to look at this work or just encourage a more um, critical dialogue in, these er in, these, uh, in this area? Um, so you have touched on a question that is near and dear to my heart, um, which is the sort of state of, um, in part why Black British history is sort of just now coming to the fore in UK institutions, but more, more, uh, more thoroughly, um about race and uh and history which the discipline of history in britain uh thinks about race much less than certainly historians in the u.s but also other disciplines in uh in in britain in the british academy in particular i would say sociology uh is where there's been a lot more work on race uh in 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 britain um you know i think you know to give a brief rundown although i'm sure i've written about this elsewhere this is sort of a, a pet discussion of mine um, to give a brief rundown, I think essentially um, the British Empire has, or there, there are two things. I think first the British, the existence of the British Empire has moved those discussions of race outside of mainland Britain. Um, so when people think about race in the British context, they do, they tend to do so with the British Empire and and less so um, in in sort of domestic British history, as the phrase often is. Uh, and in Britain as well, um, there has traditionally been a divide between historians of the British Empire and historians of Britain and historians of Britain have tended to not know that much necessarily about the British Empire um, and for you know reasons we don't need to go into that is not the training that you get in the US if you're a historian of Britain. Um, I think the other key thing is actually what you've just said about the United States um, which is that I think there is still very much a sense uh, within academia but also just within uh, within Britain more broadly that there aren't race issues in this country and that if you want to think about race, you need to think about it in the context of the United States. Um, and while that sounds, at least, you know, hopefully that sounds like a stupid statement, um, given the past few months, um, I think we can't overstate how much that has shaped the ability of British, uh, of, of British historians, or historians of Britain, I should say, um, to think about race uh, and to think critically and in sophisticated ways about race. I mean, to think about the last conversation about museums, which, you know, I'm not in the museum sector, so I don't want to, I don't want to speak too confidently about this. But one of the things that strikes me is that there's also just not that many people who are prepared and ready to go in terms of thinking critically about blackness, thinking critically about race. And so you're combining uh, workers who are either going through furlough or whose jobs are on the line or, you know, institutions that are going to be really struggling in this particular moment and then putting on them a pressure to get up to speed on a very complex area of study um, that they have not had to up to this point. In terms of what we can do about that, I mean, I would say, first of all, and I think a lot of institutions are, are trying to do this, uh, a lot of universities are trying to do this, um, but very quickly, I think we need to get people in um, in in 
lectureships in British history, regardless of, of topic, who are competent and or who are competent in um, the history of race. Um, and whether that is British history specifically, whether that's the British Empire, whether that is even US history, though that's not ideal. Um, I think there just, needs, there just needs to be a critical mass of people who can then train students uh, to do this work. Um, I think that, you know, what we don't want is yet another generation of students who don't have the critical skills and tools and familiarity with the literature to do this kind of research. Um, I actually also really like what Jeff said um, in the, the sort of micro histories uh, uh, and, and micro histories in particular of communities that are not, um, that, that are engaged in sports in this country, but who don't show up in the broad narratives. That also strikes me as another really great uh, model and a great approach and something that I think is feasible for, uh, for PhD projects uh, and something that we can start encouraging uh, students to do now. It also has the benefit of, um, of being, of, of students finding those archives that nobody else has really looked at um, and, and, and getting their, their projects and hopefully getting funding in that way. So those would be the things that, that I would recommend. Thanks, Christina. Um, Jeff, did you have anything you wanted to, to add to that? I haven't got a lot to add to it because I think that was a pretty comprehensive answer and, uh, and um, made a lot of sense to me. I would um, stick up a little bit of a defence though because uh, I do know that at De Montfort um, they do have a course spe specifically on um, empire and sport in which race is certainly discussed and I was lucky enough to teach on that course for, for one year and we certainly examined uh, the experience of um, uh, black British uh, athletes um, in the context of the West Indies and kind of traced the development of the relationship between Britain and the West Indies through the 20th century through the lens of uh, cricket and so I would say and that wasn't my course I was just teaching it but I would say that that's kind of a model for how universities might tackle this and like Christina says if you don't teach it well then you won't get future teachers so that's, yeah that's what I'd say. Thanks, Jeff. Brad, can I just chip in on that? Of course, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, just, just it was picking up really on something that uh, Christina said, at the, you know, while she was um, speaking at the beginning about sociologists particularly um, stealing the march perhaps on the, on the historical work and, and also feeding into what uh, Kay said, that um, there's a lot of opportunity, I think, for inter interdisciplinary work between sociologists and, and sports historians, you know. Um, so, for example, uh, Lise Beckett, I, I was lucky enough to work with um, Professor Kevin Hilton and have contact with Ben Carrington as well, who, you know, are both excellent sociologists and obviously are, are, um, work around uh, critical race theory and sport. And so I think that cultivating those kinds of partnerships could be incredibly important um, for, for moving sports history forward as well. Um, yeah, so that's all I wanted to say, really. Thanks, Carol. Um, that was certainly something that um, I perhaps was, was thinking about raising, was this idea that um, I, was, I was really struck by what Christina said about historians are leaving the sociologist to it and we shouldn't and we shouldn't be doing that and actually it is about working together and I know that um, people have um, people have written um, 
things about the um, the kind of the lack of engagement between sports historians and sports sociologists in Britain and actually um, we don't tend to get many sociologists coming to our BSSH events um, to my knowledge we don't have very many sociologist members um, and actually that that's perhaps something that um, we should be kind of more um, working towards. Yeah, and, and just quickly, at the risk of being controversial, one of the one of the criticisms that um, sociologists do level at histo uh, don't know if it's generally in history, but at sports historians, is that we're not theoretical enough, and that I think is is something that uh, is also potentially um, kind of puts a, a barrier perhaps between that interdisciplinary work with, with uh, historians as well. We're not theoretical enough. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, Rob Lake says, I'm a sociologist in the chat. I did not know that, Rob. Um, and uh, Matt Taylor points out that Paul Campbell, um, who wrote that book that um, I think it was uh, Jeff was talking about um, on the experiences of, of um, black footballers. And that, that's, that's, a, that's a good point. Um, but he's, he's perhaps a, you know, a, a slight exception to what's, what's been more of a general rule. Um, Rob says he's only a sociologist on the weekends. Um, I have got a couple of questions um, lined up from people who have um, asked me that they'd like to ask one. So Malcolm McLean, you had a question. Do you want to come in now? Oh, I'm lit from the back. Uh, I, I too um, uh, uh, worked as a sociologist at least at, at least at the Anyone who attached disciplinary label to me is, is slightly less clear. Um, I guess I'm coming at this is a this is a couple this is a comment on a couple of points and, and then a general question and I guess I'm coming at it as someone who's largely worked in the world of settler colonial studies uh, or with with a settler colonial background um, and uh, seems to me that when we're looking at issues around race, sport, and empire and I'm kind of riffing off some stuff that Christina said here but also a comment that both the comments that both Jeff, Jeff and um, Kay made um, Kay made. Um, when, 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 when we're looking at issues around race, sport and empire, I'm, I'm struck by three things. Firstly, I'm struck by the universalisation of metropolitan Britishness as the experience of empire. So generally speaking, I think as sports historians, we're blind to the distinctiveness of settler colonial and indigenous e e e e experience. There's a kind of formal sense that says they're all playing sport that we recognise as sport, therefore, the experience of doing that is the same thing. So we, I, I think that's the first thing. I think the, I think the second thing that I'm acutely aware of when I'm looking at questions around sport, race, race and empire is that generally speaking, as historians, we're blind to the incredibly interwoven nature of modernity and coloniality and the way they construct each other, they co-construct each, each other. Um, and so that might two kind of underpinning, I guess, conceptual points. Uh, the question is more about meth meth methodology, and I've been thinking quite a lot here recently by that, that some work that Janelle Joseph has done about sport in the Black Atlantic, and the recent work by Brenda Elsie and Josh Nadel looking at um, women's football in Latin America, um, and how distinctive they are as transnational an an analyses. Um, so I wonder if anyone in the panel would comment on the extent to which they think we're limited by a sense of methodological nationalism. Wow, that's a great question. Um, does anyone does anyone want to come in on that first? Christina, I'll come to you. 
Um, I'll just say briefly, uh, actually, thank you for that. Um, because I work on the Caribbean, I don't tend to think that uh, extensively about uh, settler colonialism, although I'm trying in some ways to make an argument in my own work uh, that settler colonialism is something we should be thinking about in some ways uh, in, in relation to the Caribbean. Um, so the one thing I would say is, um, so, so there's an article that I often assign to students uh, written by Laura Putnam, um, who writes about, uh, who, who writes about um, sort of sports fandom among Caribbean migrants to Central America. Um, and she also has a separate series of methodological essays that are both about how to do sort of transnational work um, through sort of, uh, through digitized archives uh, and the idea of the archival challenges for people who cannot necessarily move, uh, who, who can't, you know, up sticks and move to um, to other countries for long stretches of time for for whatever reason. And she, I mean, she wrote those essays long before COVID. They seem to be particularly important uh, important now. Um, but her big intervention, I think, in, in in a lot of ways, is both thinking about tracking people's movement around sort of the Caribbean basin, which means that they're moving through uh, various linguistic uh, or, or cross linguistic divides, uh, but also doing that through through newspapers. Um, and so that's some of the work that I always really point to. Uh, she's not by trade a sports, uh, a sports historian. Um, she's a historian of the Caribbean, but has done some of this work by following um, the, these people moving around uh, around the um, around the Caribbean basin. Um, Kai, do you want to come in now? Yeah, um, I, I think uh, <laughs> one of one of. I mean, thanks thanks a lot, Markham, for reminding us of. Of, of our sort of the position of our position within which we we find ourselves when we when we actually uh, when we actually write about sports history and there's no doubt that there's a kind of sort of metropolitan bias to to it and I say that even as somebody who's not a native to this country um, there's certainly a kind of European uh, sort of bias to everything we do and quite simply because that's that's who we are but I think it's worth reminding us of this. Um, the other the other point I just wanted to make with reference to the discussion before is um, that in, in with reference to the to the historical discipline and the kind of fact that um, uh, uh, now issues of race and um, uh, uh, black lives matter etc in the discipline have become sort of much more pertinent um, there's a lot of things that sort of point towards a positive development such as for example the initiatives to decolonize the curriculum, um, the recent report of the uh, Royal Historical Society, if you about a report about race, which is incredibly informative about the sort of uh, a lack of representation of uh, black and uh, uh, ethnic uh, minority scholars in uh, UK universities, um, in, in history departments in particular, um, which actually um, in no way sort of reflects the presence of black students in, 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 in our universities, in history departments. So I think there's a lot of work that's actually happening and it's, it's, so it's a very, very good time um, to do this kind of work. Okay, that's it. Thanks, Kai. Um, did Jeff or Carol want to come in on that? Carol? Yeah, can I just, it's interesting, you know, um, what you're saying there, Kai, about the, you know, the position of the universities in a way it's a that's a kind of top-down approach in my view because you know um to me how how do we encourage um people from black asian minority and ethnic groups 
to take up those places at university to me it, it drills down a lot deeper than that and so we've got to think about the school curriculum as well and how you know young people are encouraged to look forward to history as something that they feel you know belongs to them and can be a part of their identity as well and that and that drills down to down to schools. I think the Running Lead Trust has, has done quite a lot of research in relation to the school curriculum. So, you know, yes, it's really important that we take this on board within universities, but we've got to get the feed through from, the, from schools as well. And there's got to be a relationship and a partnership going on there in terms of development of curricula, mm. in my view. As long as Michael Gove decides what kind of is in the curriculum, I'm afraid it's not going to happen. So that's that's a big problem. Yes. If I could say something quickly here, because I would completely agree with with Carol, um, and you know, coming from uh, coming from the U.S., where a lot of I think a lot of uh, Black historians get into the field in so they don't go into university planning to be historians, but become historians uh, later that's an opportunity that, that you don't have in, in, in the UK system. So, uh, so GCSEs and A-levels become even, uh, become so much more important and the RHS report uh, reflects that. Um, but you know, one of the things that we're trying to do at Goldsmiths is trying to work with teachers directly because despite the, the strictures of uh, Michael Gove's curriculum, um, teachers are very hungry to, um, to embed more Black British history into the curriculum. Uh, because they're sitting there teaching students who are disengaging from from history that has no connection to them uh, and so i think there are ways that we can be active in these conversations and it may well be um that that sports history has a role to play i certainly see uh, no reason why it why it wouldn't i think part of what made university history so exciting for me and i did not go into into university planning to, to be a historian was learning that i could study pretty much whatever i wanted as a historian, and that did include sports, even though I didn't go down that that route. Um, but I wrote a very important, for me at least, uh, paper about the Munich Olympics, actually, um, and that sort of got me into the field in a way that um, I think we need to be thinking about for uh, for GCSC and A level students. Okay, um, Will Whitmore says that he's got a, a comment on this point. Will, do you want to unmute yourself and come in? I, I would love to on this point, actually, yes. Um, hi, for those of you I don't know, my name is Will Whitmore, and I actually teach at the secondary school level in the United States at a boarding school, so private school by uh, how you all call it, or public school, excuse me. It's a very tricky thing for us. And I'm also a PhD student at the University of Gloucestershire on the side, and I had the privilege of being on the podcast, uh, the Society's podcast recently. Um, I actually wanted to make this comment in the previous uh, in the previous discussion, but I think that this is a better time for it. I actually think this is a, a very right time to make relevant uh, the element of sport history, uh, particularly where we're talking about uh, as it relates to issues of race and people of color and of minority experiences and whatnot in curriculum. I know for a fact my institution is absolutely uh, pining for more uh, courses of this nature. And I don't think that we are alone uh, in the secondary school ranks. I think that universities are also um, in the same way. I recognize it's a bit trickier um, as we talk about public schools and government controlled curriculum as opposed to a private school where we can kind of dictate our own curriculum. 
Um, but I, uh, I would have been teaching a course on um, Muhammad Ali and his religious experience in sport this year, but we had, I, I was asked to teach, so, asked to look at something different with Dr. King instead. Um, so I actually think that this is a huge time frame to show the relevance of sport history and to get these narratives in there. And I think that administrators, administrators and institutions are very keen to be seen on this side of this discussion. And I think that's a really relevant opportunity uh, for the field um, and for people to engage in this way. So that's why I was vigorously nodding my head and clapping and reacting because I'm uh, living in this world as uh, someone on an administrative team in a secondary school and figuring out how we transition our curriculum to be more um, uh, descriptive and more uh, open and more integrated in these ways. Um, I'll also say, as we talk about sociologists, I am a religious studies and theologian by trade, so I just like to muddy the waters even just a little bit more as we talk about the place of working with sociologists or other disciplines and things like that. So I'd like to throw our hat into the ring as well. Thanks very much for that, Will. Um, as, as I've been listening to, to this conversation unfold um, and also listening to your opening statements, a couple of you actually mentioned the British Society of Sports History um, and, you know, what we can be doing kind of um, or the importance of us as a society discussions that we've had at board level are about how we can actually as a as an academic society have a role in some of these debates about diversifying the curriculum um, trying to encourage um, kind of students of color to engage with sports history um, and, and those kind of debates and that's that that's quite a difficult thing to do I'm just um, ref been reflecting on the kind of the place of the society and are there particular things that that we should be doing and particular initiatives that we should be pursuing um, at kind of BSSH level. I don't know if any of the, the four panel members want to come in on that. Well it might be a good time to mention the new award that we have if you, if you want to uh, if you want to talk about that Raf. Why don't you Jeff as you're, one of the, <laughs> as you're one of our panelists? Well we do have a new award which is specifically intended to foster um, research in this area. Um, the details of which escape me at the moment, so that's why I was, that's why I was hanging out the uh, the carrot for you there, Rack, to uh, to fill in the details. But, um, but it's uh, yeah, it's going to be a, I think we're terming it a community history award, um, and the idea is to try and um, for us as the BSSH to fund um, a, a community history organisation, and we'd especially like to engage. Um, with with the black community um, or with other ethnic minority communities, um, uh, kind of cognizant of the fact that there hasn't been research done in in many of these areas, um, and yeah, the the idea is to is to try and um, kind of actually reach out in some of those communities and say, well, here's some here's some money, and we'd really like we're really keen for you to to be doing some research. Um, so that's that's the kind of um, the the point behind behind the new award which we're hoping to officially launch in January 2021. We've still got a few of the, the details to be worked out, but that's the, the idea behind it. So hopefully that will speak to some of these conversations that we're having about, about diversifying um, the, the kind of research that's being done, I suppose. Um, I believe that um, Duncan has got a comment that he'd like to make. Duncan, do you want to unmute yourself and come in now? Hi Duncan. Right. Well, um, I can't believe it's nearly a decade since uh, I hosted that. Um, 
Carol for mentioning it. Um, obviously, I'm not in academia anymore. Uh, for at least five years now, uh, but I've been sort of continually publishing on this very issue over the last sort of decade. A few sort of things out there. Uh, one that I put on Academia recently that I co-wrote with Daryl Worthy, those who know him, and I, I talked to him early in the week that this was happening, and, and he was quite saying, "Well, it's not really the future that we should be talking about; it's actually the relevance." And I think I couldn't agree more with Kai, and this is something I've argued previously, in that we do, you know, sporting history notwithstanding, we do have to start publishing elsewhere. I mean, I never had a full-time job, but I published in urban history and cultural and social history. Uh, but that was because I was advised by my non-sport historian supervisors to basically publish anywhere else but if I wanted to be taken seriously, dare I say that. So I think, and this, and this goes for monographs as well, uh, but I think we have to look towards the gating there. I think the publishing houses themselves, uh, and this has been, you know, Jeff mentioned that um, we need to start rewriting standard text. Well, you know, Dick Holt was given a decade to produce for the book. Um, and yet we've got Rob Coles' uh, recent edition. But again, Daryl and I published that last thing because we had to take him to task because of the paucity of his knowledge. But I'll leave that there. Uh, but other, the other thing that Jeff mentioned was uh, in terms of the media stuff, a lot of good stuff in Australia. I'd point you towards Eric Nielsen's book, uh, the title of which escapes me. Um, further to that, I would argue that we have to essentially invade other areas rather than, you know, to escape our own echo chamber. Uh, otherwise, as I find in with cricket, the orthodox narrative survives. And unless we can actually challenge what are essentially establishment, establishment narratives, you know, things like institutional racism will continue. And that leads me on to my final point, again, I've written about, uh, in fact, the last academic conference I spoke at was actually an urban history uh, conference up in Scotland. Uh, and I basically gave a paper on the need for academics to become active. I think we've sat on the fence long enough. And in order to increase our relevance, we actually have to not just put our foot in the door, you need to kick it down. And, you know, Colin Tatt, again, in Australia, was doing that in terms of Aboriginal rights and its relationship to sport 20 years ago. Obviously, Australia still has major, major issues uh, to deal with. But in terms of this country, and in fact, globally, I think it's incumbent on sports historians, especially those who have jobs, uh, you know, to kick that door down and get themselves, you know, telling more relevant stories, dare I say. Um, so I think we need a few more Colin Tats to go with those thousands of um, Paul Barker. Um, but I think I'll rant stop there. <laughs> 
thanks, Duncan. Um, so yeah, there's some the, a kind of series of points there, I guess, which is about um, something that was picked up on by several of our speakers um, in the introduction, which is about the the, the relationship between sports history um, and other disciplines, I suppose, in terms of um, perhaps uh, sports history still being marginalised, I think was the, that Christina used right at the beginning, still marginalised in the academy and how and I guess what Duncan's trying to say is how do we how do we get away from that, how do we how do we come out of that, so do any of the panellists want to want to come in with some thoughts on how we might achieve that going forward as sports historians? <laughs> uh, Kai, yeah? I can just, I mean, I, I, I can just reiterate um, uh, some of the things that I've said, and I, I think the, 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 there's a, there's a fantastic article by Murray Phillips in one of the last issues of uh, the International Journal of the History of Sport on sports history journals and, and how, how, uh, how much of an impact they actually have. And uh, he was looking at the metrics and while the, um, while sport in history looks better in, in terms of metrics, than say uh, the International Journal of the History of Sport or the Journal of Sport History um, uh, compared to uh, mainstream historical journals, uh, it doesn't really have much of an impact. So, so you, that, that's, why, that's why I was kind of suggesting, you know, you need to publish in uh, a high profile uh, general history journals in order to, to, have, to have an impact. And I, I know some historians, uh, including in the room, such as Matt Taylor, have just been uh, recently doing this. So I could encourage you in order for, for us to be taken seriously, um, this is a this is an important point. With reference to publishers, um, I'm not so sure whether, I mean, we 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 all have that one publisher that we can always rely on, and that's Routledge, right? That publishes our our um, our journal, that publishes the International Journal of the History of Sport, that publishes volumes, and that seems to make a lot of money out of sport. Uh, I find that very interesting. Not quite sure how that actually works, but uh, it'd be interesting to hear from somebody at, at Routledge. Um, but I think other publishers as well are now sort of increasingly go, getting into this. I know in, in Germany, a very famous publishing house has now published a, a biography of Gerd Müller, a famous uh, striker for Bayern Munich uh, in the 70s. Um, uh, and uh, and I know that uh, Cambridge University Press has been publishing books on sport uh, recently. So there is there is a kind of sort of increasing openness. I, I think those gatekeepers that you mentioned are um, increasingly open towards uh, histories of sport that connect very clearly with broader themes, broader issues that aren't just plain histories of sport. So. Um, so uh, I, I wouldn't be quite as negative, but I think we need, really need to continue to to work in that and work work in that direction. I'm not sure whether I'm able to kick down doors. I'm a kind of pacifist <laughs> by, by nature, but in 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 sort of uh, in in in. Uh, but I do understand what you're saying, and I and I agree with that. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Kai. Um, we have got um, another question. Matt McDowell, I know that you um, typed earlier, quite a bit earlier on. Do you, do you want to come in now, Matt, and ask what will probably be our final question of the evening? Because we're nearly at the, the end point of this discussion. A lot of pressure on me, Ralph. Last question. <laughs> Try to make it entertaining. Um, thanks very much. And um, excellent, excellent roundtable, all four of you. Thanks very much for your contributions. And I've got a point that leads on from Duncan's and actually hits at some of what I think is discussing most of all. Um, obviously, Raf, myself, 
Carol Osborne, Fiona Skillen as well, also, and, and some of the rest of as well, also used to work in sport departments. I work in a sport management area. And I, um, and I think I completely agree with Duncan Stone that we do need to be publishing in mainstream history journals. But I think there is also a challenge about how we talk to sport, not just how we talk to the industry, but how we talk to sport students about history, because we're looking at it there on the other side of the prism. Um, one of the great challenges that I have is convincing st sports students that history is relevant. And I'm not just talking there, and obviously I've got special Edinburgh problems. I've had Fetisians and Lauritonians as former students, which I don't think you'd, you'd, you'd have a former post-92s or anything like that. But I think one of the great challenges there is how do we actually talk to the industry and how do we talk to students about, about why the history of sport and leisure is relevant. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Um, so, um, does anyone want to come in on that? On that? On that point? Yeah. Yeah. I will. I will just quickly. Um, just that I agree with Matt. I think one of the biggest challenges that I faced when I worked at Leeds Beckett, uh, working with sport development students, sport social science students, um, was was really convincing them. That history mattered. That you know that, the, yeah. Um, but I think the their sort of response to that was, well, what, why would we choose history when we're sport practitioners in the present, and we can choose modules that are more relevant to our employability than sports history might be, and I and I did run up against that issue. Um, you know, year on year, and that was that was a that was a challenge. So I agree with Matt <laughs> on that point. Okay, um, I think that Lisa Taylor wanted to to come in on this as well. Lisa, do you want to say something? Yeah, thank you. Sorry to interlope into the panel. I'm just wondering if if we can't have it both ways though. Um, and I guess maybe I might ask Kai to respond to that because. Um, if on the one hand we say we want to be taken seriously by history, uh, I, I kind of agree with the objections of your students, Carol, like I, I, as someone that disengaged from history as a student and have only come to it as a PhD student, then I can understand that the relevance of it is not immediate. Um, and that's not to say I shouldn't learn to find that relevance if I'm a curious human being. But on the other hand, I wonder if, if we're sitting in this kind of Venn diagram between sport and history, and so we're sport history in the middle, whether we can't kind of do both, you know, whether we need to set our, set our store more towards we're serious historians of culture, of gender, of whatever it might be, or we want to be relevant to people training to be sports coaches. I just don't know that we can successfully do both of those or not as a whole community. Probably all of us have slightly different inclinations towards both ends of that, of that diagram. Thanks, Lisa. Kai, did you want to respond? <laughs> it's really difficult. I think, obviously, I, I don't really have that experience with, uh, with sports students, but I think one of the things that one could imagine is if they want to work for commercial sports organizations, um, that uh, there's kind of a, an, an economic value to history as well. If you think about uh, museums for, of clubs, for example, 
um, you know, where uh, often um, the kind of heritage of a club or the kind of traditions of a club are being celebrated in, in the kind of mu museum sector. You can obviously make a case that if you want to work in that sector, it makes a lot of sense to know something about the history and then maybe have a critical approach to that history and not just a ce celebratory approach to it. But um, I wouldn't obviously wouldn't know what to say to somebody who is in, in, in coaching. But I think you can, I don't know, I, with, with reference to history, I, I've never found it difficult. I mean, I, I teach history students, but I've never found it difficult to um, get history students to be enthusiastic about sport if they had an interest in sport. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit surprised that sports students should not be interested in, in the history of whatever the disciplines in the history of what they've been doing. But uh, I'm, I'm not competent to, to say more about this. I'm sorry. Thanks anyway. <laughs> Thanks, Kai. Um, Rob Lake in the chat says um, that I think our diversity is key. Um, and I think that that's quite a nice point, probably, to wrap up on that we aren't necessarily all um, looking at this in the same way. We, we haven't come to it from the same place. And we're not, um, if we're thinking about the future of sports history, we're not necessarily all um, kind of looking in the same direction. But, but maybe that doesn't matter because diversity is really important. Um, and um, I hope that um, the contributions from our panel have reflected that. Um, I've, I've really enjoyed the round table um, and I'd just like to encourage you to give our four speakers uh, a virtual round of applause. I'm just gonna um, I'm just gonna say a few words um, now to, to wrap up our 2020 conference because this is the last conference session um, so thank you again to all our speakers this evening um, and also thank you to all of our speakers over the past three days for their contributions. Um, I've been in every session I think um, and I've enjoyed each of them in a different way. Um, just to remind you that all of the sessions have been recorded um, and will shortly be available I believe to listen to um, via the BSSH podcast um, so hopefully they'll be going up onto um, our website and we'll be tweeting about them um, so you can relive all the all the conference highlights um, except for perhaps the quiz which probably doesn't bear repeating um, although it was lots of fun. Um, for those of you who might have missed um, announcements during some of the sessions, I just wanted to announce again um, our award winners for this year. Um, so the winner of our 2020 Lord Aberdare Literary Prize is Prashant Kadambi for Cricket Country, an Indian Odyssey in the Age of Empire, published by Oxford University Press. Um, and our best article in Sport and History Prize goes to Louise Elsasser for dashing about with the greatest gallantry, Polo in India and the British Metropole, 1862 to 1914. So congratulations to both Prashant and Louise. Um, I want to say thank you again to my fellow board members um, for moving swiftly back in March um, to move away from a physical conference this August just as we were entering lockdown um, and thinking ahead um, and for everyone who was involved in organising this virtual conference. Um, I don't know if it's appropriate for me to say it but um, I believe it's been a great success although we will be um, asking for your feedback over the next few days you'll be getting an email so we'd love to hear your thoughts on the conference. Um, what went well, what we could perhaps improve on. Um, COVID has kind of spurred us into 
to going online with our conference but um, we, we have mentioned that we'd like to continue with some kind of hybrid model going forward um, and continue to facilitate people presenting virtually and attending virtually um, and we want to make sure that some of this great research that's being carried out into sports history is more accessible um, so do do send us your feedback um, on your, your thoughts on this conference and how we can kind of keep some of this um, virtual community going forward. If you have enjoyed the conference but you're not yet a member of BSSH please do consider joining the society. You can do that by going to our website which is www.sportinghistory.org um, and yeah thank you again very much everyone and I hope to see lots of you live and in person at St Mary's University Twickenham in August 2021. So goodbye. <laughs>